You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Uh, But over the past several weeks, we've been walking through Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica. So this morning, we're going to be beginning uh, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and going from verses 1 through 12. Um, As you turn there, I want to ask you this. Um, I want to ask you what it looks like for you to please God right now in your life. And if you need a Bible, just go ahead and put your hand up real quick. We have some ushers walking down the aisles where we'd love to get a Bible in your hand. If you need one, if you don't have one at home, take it home. It's our gift to you. Um, but, but as you get there, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we want to ask you, what does it look like for you to live a life pleasing to God? Right now, in your, in your life, what does it look like for you to please God? What are some things in your life right now that you know that you are doing that's like, yeah, I'm pleasing God with that? And then on the, on the other end of that, what, what are some things that you know need to go? I think we all know that there's things in our life that we know need to go. Like, what is a sin in your life that's hindering you right now from truly walking in a relationship with Jesus? We all have sin, and eventually our sin becomes so much in our lives that it hinders us from really understanding who God is. See, God has an expectation on our lives. Can we agree with that? Yes? God has an expectation on our lives for everyone. If we have salvation through Christ, we can no longer continue to to live the way that we did before Christ changed us. And just as the Thessalonians were changed by the true gospel, as Paul says, there is also an expectation on their lives as well. Anyone who's in Christ, there is now an expectation on your life that you would live a life that is pleasing to God. And that's where, that's where we're kind of walking through this morning. And that's kind of everything Paul's been building up to. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, let's read this together. And it says this. <clears throat> Finally, then brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed it is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's pray together and let's walk through that text. Father God, Lord, we love you. And God, as we walk through this text this morning, God, I pray that you would just 
just give us eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty of Christ in it all, God. I pray that we would not put up a front this morning, God. I pray that we would not allow a sin in our lives to blind us from the things of God, but that you would rip them away, that you would rip these excuses away, God. You'd rip this sin away from us, God, that we'd see the picture of the gospel clearly and the picture of Jesus clearly in these moments. God, I pray that as we know, as if we've been transformed by the glory of King Jesus, that he is our Savior, that he now has an expectation on our lives, God. And for those who are here saying, I know Jesus, but yet I have no expectation, God, I pray that you would just rip apart every excuse that we have this morning, that we would call him Lord of our lives, not for our own good, but for your glory. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So as we walk through this text, let's look. We're going to walk through this text little by little this morning. And so, listen, first word. In many of your translations, it'll say finally. If you have an ESC, it says finally. Some places say um, other things. But here's the thing. Paul's written all these different things to this point. And finally kind of gives us the impression that Paul's finishing his letter. He's finishing his thoughts. And, and he isn't. He's saying, look, that word finally actually translated to furthermore. Like now that you've heard all these things, we move from Paul's narrative of what is actually happening in the church at Thessalonica to his instruction, moving you towards instruction. He's saying, now, now, now that you know all of these things, furthermore, we begin to give instructions. And he reiterates what a genuine faith makes and what a genuine faith looks like and makes a difference in how we live so Paul's breaking this down saying, furthermore, since you know what we invested into you, furthermore, since you have truly accepted the gospel, furthermore, we ask you not to stop and to keep walking deeper into the gospel. How do we know this? Because he says, you received it from us of how you ought to walk in to please God. Look, just as you are doing, so they're already doing it, but he says this, it's not enough. Keep on doing it. Do it more and more. Grow in it. Make it second nature to who you are. See, Paul knows that every act of sin and disobedience can be traced back to our unwillingness to surrender to God. Every single one, every single sin, every single thought is, goes back to, to our unwillingness to surrender to God and also to obey his word. See, it's a refusal to go deeper into the gospel. When we actually become happy with who we are in our own standards, we actually miss what it looks like to please God. We say, well, by the world standards or by my standards, I'm okay, I'm doing good. And that, that might be well and good, and you might be a good person, great, but if we stop there looking at our own lives and our own standards and thinking, like, God's pleased with me, we actually miss out on pleasing him because it's not his standard. And we can't be happy with that. We can't, we can't just be okay with that. See, when, 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 the, Thessal, uh, when, the, when the church of Thessalonica, when, when, they, when they welcomed God's word, the foundation was laid, how do we know? Look at me. Chapter 2, verse 13 says this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, look, not as the word of man, but what, as it really is the word of God. So he laid the foundation there, and Paul instructed them to walk in a manner worthy of God. That's what he laid before them. Look, this involves just not knowing a bunch of things, church. All right, can we agree with that? This, this involves not knowing just more things about God, but by growing in the likeness of God. And that's what we're kind of getting to this morning, right? They're told to do that more and more. They're told, don't quit. Don't give up. Don't think you've arrived. Don't become conceited in your salvation. Don't become complacent in your faith. Don't become arrogant in what you think you know, right? Do everything you can to strive more and more to please God. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't think you've arrived. Don't think, well, I'm at a good place in my life with Jesus. Now, no, you, we can keep on walking to become more like him. Because his standard is perfection. We are far from it. And we get halfway there and we think, oh, I'm good enough. And that's not what Christ calls our lives for. See, these instructions, they don't come from ourselves. They come from Christ. 
Because these instructions came from the Lord to Paul and from Paul to them. So we know that they come from Christ. They aren't ideas of man of ten ways of healthy living, church. They're instructions from God for a pleasing life in him. Paul's just not like, hey, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. No, he's saying, this is how we live for the glory of King Jesus. So how do we know this? First, verse 3 says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So we're going to hang out here for a few minutes because it's such a loaded statement <laughs> found within the scriptures. For this is the will of God. Look, how often do we drive ourselves nuts by trying to figure out God's will for our lives? Let's just be real, right? Like, it can be crippling in our lives, <clears throat> excuse me, so much so that we become afraid to make decisions. There's a guy named Kevin DeYoung that wrote a book called Just Do Something. I love that book. If you're, if you're a young adult, pick it up. If you're not a young adult, pick it up. It's a great book. But, like, we, we become crippled by, by God's will and, like, how often, like, we drive ourselves nuts by trying to figure out God's will for our lives. And I've already asked Andrew if I could use this example, and she said yes, so... Um, my, my, my lovely wife, several years ago, obviously before we were married, uh, she, was, she was sharing with me, like, she was, she's in this, like, I'm trying to figure out God's will for my life. And she was, like, trying to think of this, like, this puzzle piece that she had to get perfectly right that God would be pleased with her. Like, this is what God's... And so she actually began to freak out in her mind because there was this guy at our church in Florida where she was like, I am terrified that God is wanting me to marry this guy that I have no attraction to whatsoever on any level. And I'm terrified that God's, gonna, like, God's will for me is to marry this guy and just to make me live a miserable life. And I'm like, you are nuts. All right? I can say that there because she's my wife now, right? But, but I'm looking, I'm like, come on. I'm like, that, that, when people hear God's will, like, that's, that's what they do. They're like, they compartmentalize, well, God wants me to, this is, and, and well, some of those things might be well and true. Here's the reality of God's will. Every time the Bible talks about God's will, look, it points the believer to bring God glory in some way, right? Here's the thing. God's will is less about you and less about me and more about himself, Right? And here we go. Yes, his will involves you, but God's end goal, look, church, I know it's surprising, God's end goal is not you, right? God's end goal is his glory, for this is the will of God. This is how you bring him glory. It's about bringing him glory. Yes, you're in the process, but it's ultimately about him. God is for God. I love that Matt Chandler said that many years ago in a sermon, but God is for God. God's not for you. He's about his own glory. Yes, he cares about you. He loves you. He died on a cross for your salvation, but God's ultimate goal is not you. It's himself, right? And so we, we look at this. So, so how do we, we walk through some of these different things? For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is how you bring him glory. Now, look, sanctification literally means the process of being made holy. A lot of you know that, right, because you've been church for some amount of time. To become more like Jesus, that's how I break it down to my students. Sanctification literally means to be more like Jesus, to walk in holiness, to take on the attitudes and the characters of Jesus. Paul actually uses this word twice. He uses it in verse 3, which we just read, and he's also going to use it in verse 7. And in verse 7, a lot of it says where it says, we're not for impurity, but for unholiness, or that word is, but for sanctification. <clears throat> we are being made holy or like Jesus. See, Pleasing God involves our sanctification. So the question is, what is it? 
So if, if pleasing God involves our sanctification, the question then becomes, so what is sanctification? I know what the definition is, but what's a practical definition? Here's a, here's a few different things to understand what it is. It's a status. Your sanctification is a, a status. We are sanctified because of Christ, right? In him, we are, transfer, we are transferred to a new kingdom. We're not stuck in the same old mess. We're transferred to a new kingdom. We have the righteousness of God. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. Your sanctification is a status because you are in Christ. That's the first thing. It's a status for you. Second thing, it's a journey for you. I think we can all agree that, yes, it's a status, but we, we still live in a broken world, right? We still, loved, we still live in a messed up world. See, your journey is not judging other people's journeys. Let's just let's put that out there. Because we have a tendency to be like, well, I'm here, you're there, shame on you. Well, you might have started at a different place than they did. You might have started 20 years ago. See, us as a church, here's one of the biggest things is, is as we're walking in Christ... For those who've been walking in Christ, suddenly, magically, when we get to like, like Mark 20, 20 years of walking with Jesus, we expect the person who's walking for 20 months with Jesus the same way that we are. And it's a different place at a different time. God matures us at different levels in different places. It's a journey. Here's the great thing. Your sanctification is also a cycle. This is my favorite part of sanctification, the fact that it's a cycle. See, the more we become more like Jesus, the more we see our own sin. The more we become more like Jesus, the more we see our own brokenness and our own wickedness. And what does that do if we're walking in sanctification and become more like Jesus? It points us back to Jesus, that we need Jesus more. And so it's this cycle of we walk with Jesus, we get to know Jesus more, he reveals our brokenness, we see the weightiness of our sin, and that sin points us back to Jesus. It's a cycle, and it's a beautiful cycle, and it's one that Jesus uses in our lives to bring us closer to him. If we ever get to a place where we're walking with Jesus and we become okay or satisfied in our sin, we're no longer walking with Jesus. We're walking with ourselves and we get to a place where we think that we've arrived and we're just like, hey, look, I'm good. Like, I know God's goal is perfection, but I'm halfway there and I'm going to stay here. No. See, Paul says, do this more and more. He, he doesn't say do this half and half. And so we look at so it's a cycle. What else is it? Well, as Paul already said, it's God's will. Right, and like I said, every time we see God's will brought up in the Bible, brought up in the scriptures, it's always about him. It's always about bringing him glory through how you respond and, and, and how, what we do. So it's a simple answer to a complex question. It's his will. It, it's, it's a pleasure to God. It's, 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 who we, it's, it's what he does in our lives that we then respond out of his will. Here's the last thing. What is it? It's not done alone. I know some of us are, are, are individual warriors and we think that we're gonna, we're gonna conquer hell with a squirt gun and we're gonna be like, I'm gonna take it down. You're not, because what's gonna happen is you're gonna just get completely destroyed. And so we don't achieve sanctification on our own. We, we cannot will our sinfulness into submission. I know that's hard for some of us to believe because you're stubborn like me, right? We can't will our sinfulness into submission. Sin your submission to me now you can't really do that because your sin often is bigger than you. And your sin is surrounding you and your sin is constantly before you. And yes, you can choose not to sin, but at its core, we must rely on the Spirit of God to actually root out the wickedness within us. 
It's not done alone. It's not done on what you can do. It's not what I can do. It's not on on how good I can preach or how great you can sing or how many missions projects you go on or how many times you attend church. Those things by themselves will not root out the sin in your life. It is the Spirit of God working within you that will root out the sin in your life. Here's the second part of that. It's not done alone. You need each other for sanctification. This is why we do life together, church. This is why we have uncommon community. This is why we do small groups. This is why we do our ministry groups. This is why we do things together collectively because we see the sin in each other's lives so often quicker than we see it in our own, right? And if you're walking with someone in in a relationship, they can gently and lovingly say, hey, you are off base here. You say you're following Jesus, but you're really missing the mark here. We walk together in community, so yes, God will use other people in your life to help you root out the sin in your life. At the very least, he will allow other people in your life who care about you to reveal it to you. So often we're blind to our own sin. And that's a scary place because I know I need people in my life to say, hey, Andy, you really messed that up. I know I need people in my life to say, hey, Andy, like, man, you need to get it together here. Right? That's, the, that's, that's sanctification. That's God's will for your life is your sanctification. His ultimate goal is not about you, it's about himself, and, and it's about how you bring him pleasure through sanctification in your life. And here's where we get to the interesting part, the fun part, where Paul, as a part of sanctification, says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, look, that you abstain from sexual immorality. I'm going to take a sip of water and let you guys squirm for a second. All right. <clears throat> look, to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, look, sexual purity, I want to put this out here. Sexual purity is not the only part, hear me when I say this, is not the only part to our sanctification, but it is definitely a contributing factor. Amen? Look, so why did Paul write that here? Like, sanctification touches every part of a person's life. Every single part of it, sanctification will touch. Why? Because you are broken and we are sinful and we, we all need Jesus and we all are missing the mark in so many different ways in our lives. And so sanctification touches every part of a person's life. So look, why did Paul then write those things to the Thessalonians? Why did he choose to say that there? I thought they, we can say this, I thought they accepted the gospel and, and I thought they were true believers. Paul said that, right? Verse uh, Chapter two, right? Paul needed them to know that God is God over all things, even in the things that they may do in secret. And for us, God is God over all things, even of the things that we do in secret. We somehow think that God has blinders when other people can't see us, right? And so these are things that we do in secret. So here's the reality. Thessalonica was a sex-saturated city, right? Very reminiscent of Corinth. It was a sex-saturated city. Thanks to this being a port, it became a, a, a hub of many worlds colliding into one. So you had many lifestyles, you had many religions, including temple prostitutes, that were normal things of the Thessalonian culture. Here's the, here's the other part of that. Believe it or not, the Greek culture does not have a biblical view of sexuality. Right? They thought it unreasonable for men to have monogamous relationships, even in their marriages, and so many of these married men still had mistresses, and they, the, the Greek culture thought it odd to have to show sexual restraint. 
See, this was the culture that the church at Thessalonica was being redeemed out of. And the question is, does that remind us of today's culture where we don't think it necessary to have to show sexual restraint? I think so. Are we really sex crazed in a majority of things? I think so. Do we need to go very far to find something that's sexualized? No. I mean, for crying out loud, we've got to turn on a commercial now, and there's like, they're advertising, like, whatever, a food product, and there's like a girl in a bikini in a waterfall. I'm like, what? I'm like, why? You couldn't have done this any other way? Right? And, and this, is the, this is the reality of, of that culture, right? Now, I know for us, look, check me out. Sexual immorality, look, is not a new thing. As much as it feels like over time it's getting worse and worse and worse, it's, re- it's not. And it's been there since, since the fall, right? We see, we see Adam and Eve, right? They were both, uh, they're okay in Genesis 2, Genesis 3. They realized quickly that they were naked and, and they hid and they were ashamed, right? The moment sin entered the world, like it was the moment sexual immorality entered the world, didn't take sexuality very long to overwhelm the culture. So you have something in Genesis 2, which God said in its context is good. Genesis 3, you see the fall of man. And by Genesis 19, you see God raining fire from the sky to completely destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Does not take very long for sexual immorality to be rampant and destroy things within the kingdom of God. Now, when we talk about that term sexual immorality, everyone goes, so Andy, what's that mean? Does that mean I can do A, B, and C, but not D? No. Here's the thing. Sexual immorality is what I like to call the junk drawer of sexual sin. Everyone has the junk drawer in their kitchen, right? You just throw everything in there, and on the counter, friends coming over, you pull it out, and right? Everyone has the, uh, the junk closet, right? You're throwing it all in there. For my students, it's probably your entire closet, right? And, and this is the reality of this, right? Sexual morality is the junk drawer of all sexual sin. Pornography, adultery, lustful passion, homosexuality, heterosexuality outside the bonds of marriage. Anything outside of what God prescribes in his words, uh, in his word, right? This includes actions and thoughts. Jesus takes it a step further in the Gospels where he says, look, even if you look at a woman, you've lusted, Right? Let me clarify that. If you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. There you go. I need to clarify that because you got, that's really okay. Let me clarify that. I'm sorry. All right. But look, it includes your actions and your thoughts. Like it includes your body and your heart and your mind. Look, Paul continues. He's like, all right, so look, abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from that. Verse four says this, that each of you know how to control his own body. Look, in holiness and in Honor. These are huge things. We're to control our own body. This self-control extends to, to every area of life, our sexuality, but it can go into other, other places of life, like treatment of others. It can go into conduct in our workplace and our money. But specifically here, Paul is dealing with sexuality. And sexuality is not something that can just be turned off, right? It's, it's a, a biological need of, of many humans, right? Because that's how we are wired. We're sinful and we're wired in biology, right? And so it's a part of God's plan, but sin has corrupted that plan. God said sex is good, but outside of the context of what he prescribes it in, it is not. Why? I'm going to tell you this really quick. A misuse of sex is a fast way to detract the body, the heart, and the mind. But not just to detract him, but to detract him away from God. A misuse of sex is a fast way to detract your body, your heart, your mind away from bringing God pleasure. 
See, a misuse of sex takes us to places that we never wanted to go, and a misuse of sex takes us to a place of places we never thought we could go. For some of us in this room, you know and you are the example of that because you've been redeemed out of that. And it takes you to far beyond places. We talk about things like pornography use. And this is usually when I, when I say the word pornography, all the women start looking at the guys and the guys start going, hmm, right? But here's the reality. All the stats, women, point to you're using it more and more. So it's, it's not a guy thing anymore. It is a us thing now. And because, because we're not finding these things, and the reality is pornography, and it's been proven in scientific study, rewires the brain, and such a problem, it's such a problem that even secular, non-Christian organizations are saying that this is a public health problem. And you have secular organizations called The New Drug that are really trying to combat and deal with pornography use and this rampantness of sexual immorality on our culture. Huffington Post, which is a super liberal slanted media organization, even says this, that if you want to get a, uh, get a, a grip on the, uh, on the sex trafficking issue, we need to get a grip on North America's porn addiction issue. That's Huffington Post. And I'm not trying to knock any organization, but look, if you read their stuff, you know that they are not Christian-leaning. And when the broken world is noting the brokenness of sexual morality within our own culture, what do we expect to say? But yet, church, we sit quiet. We say, oh, I know it's a problem. I'll talk about it in my small group. I know it's a problem, but you know, I just know I'm not going to talk about it. But the world is screaming it's a problem. And we, ha- we get mad about commercials, about toxic masculinity. What about biblical manhood? Right? Let's, let's walk through these things collectively as a church. Look, there's over 40, look, sexual morality, there's over 40 million, track with me, 40 million victims of sex trafficking worldwide. 40 million. The average age of the first view of a young man viewing pornography is between the ages of 8 and 11. That's a new stat. Stats also show that 90% of males between the age of 18 and 16 have already viewed pornography. Stats also show that how young a young man is exposed to viewing pornography directly impacts of how they view women. Are they an object for lust and pleasure, or are they a creation of God? As a father of of two young boys, this is gut-wrenching, right? this This is where I tell parents and us have things in place to prevent this. Right? We, we have things like Covenant Eyes that, that prevents these things or at least monitors these things. We have, we have, look, we have the technology of the world at our fingertips and let's use it for godly purposes, church, right? That's the reality. Like, I look at my son. If the age of eight is statistically correct, my son is now five, which means I have three years on average until he actually views this stuff. Now, we're going to take measures to make sure that doesn't happen, right? But that's the reality of, of the culture of what we live in. And for some of us as Christian parents, we, we don't monitor these things. And we just kind of let them go rampant, and we're like, oh, it'll, it'll work out. It'll be fine. Really? Because the, the world isn't stopping trying to get a hold of your kid. The devil isn't stopping trying to get a hold of your heart, especially in the area of sexual immorality. And here's the thing I tell the church right now. This is where we must model sexual purity to our students and our children. This is where we must care about these things. This is the thing that we must care about. See, in our, in our culture, look, I'm going to take a step further. Porn is simply a gateway to allow the devil to destroy the family. 
Destroy the family, destroy authority. Destroy the family, destroy the culture. Destroy the family, damage the church. And that's the reality of the weightiness of sexual morality. I don't need to go in graphic detail about what it looks like. The culture can do that for you. But that's the implications of sexual morality within our church. Notice I say didn't destroy the church. Why? Because we know that the church will not be destroyed because the gates of hell will not overcome it. But we also know that it can put a damage into the church because it damages the authority of the church. Now, a common argument regarding sex and sexuality that I've often heard is this, especially around homosexuality, is, well, it doesn't matter because I disagree. <clears throat> even, in, even in Christian circles, I hear this, well, it doesn't matter, I disagree with, you know, it's fine. If you disagree, let's work this out for a second. If you disagree with what is said in the Bible, you realize that you're disagreeing with the God of the Bible, and it becomes a lordship issue at that point, right? If Jesus is Lord of your life, your disagreement is trumped by him being Lord over your life. Your obedience to Christ is more important to you than feeling right. Right? Christ is, Christ is Lord of your life means that you have surrendered your own sinful expectations, your own sinful interpretations, and your own feelings at the feet of Jesus. Right? And so we, we look at that. That's how we control our own body. Right? We walk in holiness and in honor. We care about the things that God cares about, verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. It's reminiscent of what, of what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, that, who were also facing a, 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 a cultural battle involving sexuality. Don't turn there, but just listen. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Look, and such were some of you which means no longer are, and the expectation now is there that you walk in holiness, that some were you, but you were washed, you were, look, sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, if you're in Christ, does that mean that your sin goes away? No, but that means that you should have an expectation and a, a burning passion to fight against the sin in your life. We can't be okay with just allowing it to happen or just being like, oh, that's, that's a side product of my wickedness. No, you need to be walking in holiness. Walking in, in sanctification, verse 6 goes, look, so the passion of the lust of the Gentiles who don't know God, look, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as you were told beforehand, and I solemnly warned you. We're going to focus on the first part of that verse, that no one transgress and wrong his brother. Sexual sin is not committed to myself, but also to others. See, people say, no, it's okay, it's consensual. We're both into it. It's fine. We're not hurting anyone. Here's the reality. God has a clear plan for sex. God has a clear plan for that. And anything outside of his plan is sin. And a commentator actually makes the argument of this. Sexual sin is saying to God, I don't care if I sin against you. And I also don't care if I cause this other person to sin against you. It's a double. You sin against God, but also against the other person. And you also lead the other person. Step further. Okay, so you're like, all right, so it affects the other person. I get that. Step further. Have you guys seen the news about what's happening in the States with the abortion bills? Do we not think that an abortion can be a direct result of our sexual immorality? Right? It becomes an inconvenience of our consequence. And that's the reality. And we wonder, why is there so much wickedness? Because sexual immorality is a gateway to pulling you away from the holiness of God and leads you down a path that you never thought you'd end up. Even good meaning people, even good Christian people, when they get entangled in sin, especially in this area of their life, it will take them beyond a place they ever thought they'd end up. 
This is why we need to strive to please God. And the question goes back to this. Is Jesus truly the Lord of your life? Does a Christian care about godliness and and holy living? Can someone truly understand the glory of Jesus if they only want him as Savior, but not as their Lord? They don't want to surrender to him. Holiness is rooted, see church, in our actions. Or sorry, holiness is rooted in our heart and is expressed in our, our actions. And I want you to hear this, because this is where it gets really, really dicey, but living sanctified, look at me when I say this. I don't want this to get misconstrued. Living sanctified does not mean trying harder. Living sanctified means digging deeper into the gospel. It doesn't mean like, I need to try it. Yeah, yes, there are some steps to, and components to, to wanting to do that and to wanting to strive. But when we try to do it on our own power all the time, we get defeated on our own power all the time. That's why we need God working within us. And it partially is done by we dig deeper into Christ. There's no short, shortcut to sanctification. It takes time and it takes a passion for Christ. There's no shortcut. There's no like, I'm, I'm healed from this and, and never doing back. It takes time. It is possible. We do need to take our steps and do our part, but at the same time, we need to allow God to work in us. So often we're like, all right, I'm going to take steps and we leave God behind. They're like, well, all right, I'm going to take steps and, then, and look how great I'm doing and look how the steps that I've taken and look at all the things that I've done. And God's going, yeah, it's going to be a time before you fall because you left me out of the equation. Right? So our sanctified life, I'm going to put this on the screen. Our sanctified life is not about whining about the things we can't do. Look, our sanctified life is rooted in finding pleasure in pleasing God. Read that slowly because it can get kind of twisted. Our sanctified life is rooted in finding pleasure in pleasing God. Our lives and the rootedness of who we are in Christ is all about finding our ultimate pleasure and wanting to bring glory to King Jesus. It's not about you. It's about bringing glory to Jesus. It's not about you. It's about finding pleasure in pleasing the one who has redeemed you out of your sin. Our culture says find what you do and what you love to do. Live how you want to live and bring yourself pleasure. Do it. That's not us as believers. See, we are in Christ. We are a new creation. Our ultimate joy is to find our joy in Christ and to bring Christ glory. It's not about us in no way. Like, that's the power of the gospel. Like, when, when we're not following Christ as we did, like, we're pleased. That, but now that we are in Christ, we see him as Savior and Lord. We realize God's will and his calling on our lives. We're now able to have an act of faith and strive to be more like Christ. See, those saved from the culture have to live within the, the culture as well, right? So we're saved out of a sinful culture, but we can't isolate ourselves. I love this, this, this verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 7. You know, for, for, God, for therefore God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness is kind of the, the cap of that entire section there. It says, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is a huge, huge thing, church. And one thing I love about this is that all three persons of the Godhead are actively involved in our sanctification. All three persons. We have God the Father because we're trying to please God and it's, it's done through the instructions and the commandments and the perfection of Jesus and it's done with the help of the Spirit in our lives. 
This is why I, I love, if you ever have a chance to read the book by J.D. Greer called The God Inside You, it's called Jesus Continued, but the, the subtitle is The God Inside You is Better Than the God Beside You. And it's all about this very thing. But here's the scary thing. It says, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, right? So what is the, what is the this? God's call to sanctification. God's call to purity. And God's call to living a godly life. It's not complicated. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, if you love me, you will what, church? Keep my commands. And we're like, how? well, what's the will of God? Sanctification. How will I know if he's pleasing me? Keep his commands. What are his commands? Read the Bible. It's amazing to me how, how, many, how many people come and be like, well, what, what's God's commands? Read. <laughs> Read the gospel. He tells you pretty clearly what his expectations are. Ah, the gospel's kind of long. Read something shorter. Read the pastoral epistles. Paul will tell you, because of Christ, what his expectations are. Like, we have no excuse, church. And, and being a part of this church, being here week in and week out, I know you know unless you're not paying attention whatsoever. Because I know what Pastor Daryl's preaching. I know what I'm preaching. I know what Pastor Brett is preaching. And it's nothing, nothing new to these things. But that's the reality of sexual immorality. But then we also look at this. We need to live our life purposefully. God cares about our holy living. He cares about our sanctification. And after Paul deals with this area of sexual purity, he then shifts his focus to how do we love well. One thing that is clear from Paul's writing is that in Christ we are to reflect many different areas of, of growth and care in our lives. This includes how we treat our own body, but look, how we also treat other people. Paul says this, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that and indeed it is what you are doing to all the brothers from Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this, look, more and more. Don't stop, don't give up, don't think you've arrived, do it more and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So go back to verse 9, it says this, Paul says, concerning brotherly love, growing in love is a part of the sanctification process, okay? Jesus loved perfectly, so therefore, we should strive to love perfectly, right? What does this look like? Being sacrificial with your, your time and with your finances, considering yourself less, showing true humility, showing compassion, be gentle, all these different things. And we see that, that the church at Thessalonica, they're already doing this. They're already known to be a loving community throughout. And so when you line up the church at Thessalonica with, with like Harvest Niagara, you say, is Harvest Niagara known for loving in the community? Are we known for, for backbiting and fighting? Are we known for, for whatever? Are we known for loving our community? Are we known for loving each other? Are we know, look, are we known for loving the people that walk in our doors who've never sat here before? What are we known for? Yes, we want to be known for hard preaching. We want to be known for saying the hard thing, but we also want to be known for caring for other people. Man, if we're only one but not the other, we're not really living out what God has called us as a church to be. And so we, we look at that, and we look at, I want to focus on verse 11 and 12 real quick, because this is often where people have a cop-out, right? Verse, verse 12 informs verse 11, right? So we say, 
that we aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and, and to work with your hands as we instructed you that you may walk properly before outsiders to be dependent on no one. See, we're to love those in the church, but also to love those outside of the church. And I know that's kind of hard for some of us, right? One of the easiest ways to live properly before people outside the church or the, quote, outsiders, one of the easiest ways to do that is to live quietly and to work diligently. And I know that seems kind of weird, but it's, that's not necessarily written to us Right? That's written to the church. That's like is a direct response to the church because they stopped working because they saw the Lord's return as imminent. And so they said, well, he's coming back any day now, so I don't need to work. So I, 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 can, I can have a lot of time on my hands and not have to worry about work and I can kind of do what I want. I can mingle in people's issues and problems. And then in turn, they became more of a problem that they were being helpful for. And they're going, I'm waiting for the Lord. So therefore, I don't have to work. By the way, thank you for not doing that. All right? Because I think more and more we see the Lord's return is imminent, but we also know the importance of working, okay? Here's what I want to focus on for the next few minutes and we're going to be done. This whole thing of a quiet life. Everyone's like, oh, man, you mean I don't, like, I can just smile and nod at people and they can know that I'm a Christian and it's, it's all good? Like, it's a quiet life, right? No, right? The translated Greek, look, it insinuates a state of uh, of, of state of being rather than a lack of words, all right? It literally means peaceable. Look at me, church. Living a quiet life doesn't mean you don't evangelize, all right? Living a quiet life doesn't mean you don't speak hard things. It doesn't mean you avoid people, all right? It means you're, you're to be peaceable with others with who don't know any better. Because sometimes us as Christians, when we see the world acting the way that sinful, broken people act, we start getting mad at them because they should know better, but they don't know any better. And how about we get up off onto our feet and go that direction, <laughs> onto our feet and actually bring the gospel to them so that they might hear the gospel and that they might know better and that they might respond to King Jesus. See, living a quiet life doesn't mean you can sit down, not say a word, just smile and nod at people, and they go, what a great Christian. No, it means be peaceable, it means be gentle, it means be understanding, it means be caring. That's what that means. And minding your own affairs, that's the natural result of, of leading a quiet life. There's nothing more disruptive in a church than a church gossip, amen? All right, so here's the reality. Someone who feels the need to know everyone else's business, that's not living a quiet life. I know it's hard for us as people, especially in our sinfulness, not to want to know every detail about every person's life in the world, all right? We as people like knowing the dirt. You guys track with me here? We as people like knowing something that someone else doesn't know. Because what happens with that information is we're like, hey, you know what, you know what I heard? And then it becomes a whirlwind. You don't know how many churches I've seen destroyed from the inside out because the gossip wouldn't be contained. That is not living a peaceable life, and that's exactly what Paul is writing about in this passage, about people who are being damaging to the church. This is the perfect meaning of idle hands are the devil's workshop, right? It's the perfect meaning. We are to walk properly before outsiders, how you live, how you speak, how you shape your life, and how you allow people to see Jesus in you. We've been watching a world always about how to conduct yourself in these matters. Look, just look, look, look. look. What's happening in the political realm of the U.S.? I'm an American, so I still follow U.S. politics. Pretty good, right? And, and you see the wickedness and the depravity, and, you, and you're, you're looking at all these different things, and you're like, what is going on? And I'm like, that. Like I came from Virginia. 
That wasn't the Virginia that I left. And that was five months ago. And I'm looking at it going, what's going on? New York, Virginia, now Rhode Island, all the same kind of bills. And church, like, you, like I'm just going to say this, like, you can't legislate true morality. Yes, we want to take, we want to take strides to do that. We want to take strides to, to have some sort of influence and some sort of voice in the political atmosphere. But at the same time, is morality doesn't come from legislation. It comes from heart-changing Christ. And so that's where we need to focus our lives, especially going back to this, especially in the realm of sexual immorality and caring about sexual purity, how it affects you, how it affects your relationship with God, how it affects other people. I'm going to say this. I'm going to invite the band to start making their way up here, but I'm going to say this. This is the last thing I'm going to say. You can't do anything for the Lord when you're dead or when he returns. You can't do anything for the Lord when you're dead or when he returns, right? That's the end of, of this life. And that's when I say this. This is your time. This is our time as the church, and we need to use it to his glory. Allow your sanctification to bring glory to Jesus. And if you are someone who's walking right now in sexual morality or have made, started making paths towards that way, it's not too late. And in Christ, with your breath still on this earth, it is never too late, and you're never too far. And so we need to see the grace of Jesus. We can come to him in our brokenness and in our sin. We can come to him and he will forgive you. He will give you new life. He will pull you from your sin. He will root it out of your life and he will say, you are mine. Church, it's not too late. As, you're, as long as your breath is on this earth, you can still respond to Jesus and you are not stuck in your sin. Control your body. Strive for holiness. Church, it matters. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we love you. And God, as we walk through this topic, this weighty subject, God, I pray that you, God, you would just root out the, the sin in our life, God, where we don't see it. God, I pray, that, I pray that you would root it out, that you would show it to us, God, that you would reveal it to us, God, that you would be made known in our lives for those who are struggling with these very topics in their life now. God, I pray that they would not harden their heart to you, that they would soften their heart to you, that they would not make excuses, that they would not say, but not today, but maybe tomorrow, God, that you would root out every excuse in our lives. God, that we would point towards you. God, not for our own sake, but for yours. For that verse doesn't say, for this is the will of Andy, for this is the will of Harvest Niagara, it says, for this is the will of God. Your sanctification. God, allow us as individuals and as a church to make much of King Jesus. God, allow us to make much of you. Allow us to remember that God is for God and that he still works today. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray.